a Highline podcast. Hello, welcome to the Whiskey Bench. I'm Stephen Torna. I'm Kat Dwyer. We are hanging out today on a Saturday afternoon, which is not our usual recording schedule, but honestly, it's kind of nice. Four o'clock, we already have cocktails in hand. Yep. Ready to hang out and have some fun. Right before we started, you said that you've got some dinner yep. ready to go, kind of to wrap up. What What does that consist of? I am uh, roasting spaghetti squash, Ooh. making meatballs, and pesto. Well, dang. That sounds delicious. <laughs> so, it's all like midstream. So when I get home, I got to make the balls and fry them up. Oh, that sounds so good. The uh, pesto's made. Okay. So I love pesto. Mm. And I do a ton of cooking, but I almost never make pesto. Oh, it's so like, it's easy, easy and cheap and fast. That's I, what this I, meal I'm is. It's like lazy. A... And so I buy it at Costco. Ew, don't do that. I'm, I, I'm ashamed now. <laughs> I'm shocked by that because I came over and you're making empanadas. Yeah. And it looks like everything's from scratch. Everything is from scratch. So I not... even smoked my own pork. But... Yeah, right. So <laughs> for some reason, I never do pesto, though. Well, all right. I like to do um in the summer. I just made like a standard basil pesto tonight. Although I use a sub and use uh, walnuts instead of pine nuts because pine nuts are so expensive. Yeah, why and are they so expensive? I don't know exactly, but my understanding is that most pine nuts are imported from China. Oh, and somehow that makes them more expensive. Wild. I don't fully understand. Okay. What you're doing. <laughs> so, anyways, but they are very expensive. Well, way to be resourceful with with ingredients, I suppose. <laughs> But a good cilantro pesto in the summertime is fantastic. Ooh, that does sound amazing. Mm-hmm. I guess that's kind of similar to like when I do uh, Indian food a lot of the time, I'll make like a, a chutney, like a mint chutney. Mm-hmm. And yeah. It's a similar idea of as making pesto, but with, you know, different herbs. Right. Yeah. But yeah. And when you do your um, chimichurri, when you, you, you make a good chimichurri, don't you? For like, I do. Yeah. Mostly like I usually eat it with steaks. Right. That's yeah. like my go to. I've yeah. got like a few staple meals that I just love. Yeah. One of them is a nice, simple, like cast iron steak mm-hmm. or like a, a skirt steak. If I can find a good skirt steak, uh, a little bit of salt and pepper, paprika. Mm. I've done it before where I do like micro ground coffee with paprika, salt and pepper and kind of like marinate the steak, which is super good. And I don't always have the micro ground coffee laying around. Yeah. But then I just serve it with some chimichurri. I like it like on the spicy side with extra pepper mm, and yeah. then some Parmesan creamed corn. Oh, yeah. You cooked this for yes, us. Yes, I did when <laughs> Henning was here. When Henning was here. It, I just love that meal. Yeah, that's a good meal. But I it's also, an impressive meal, too. And it's none of it's terribly expensive or difficult, but no. it's like it presents really well. Oh, but then you buy a nice like Wagyu steak. Well, just, yeah, like, you go that route. it over the edge. Yeah. And it's just so good. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. I, I'm in a, not necessarily a rut. I'm like, I don't know. I've chosen to be in this place, but I like, because of my budget, eat the same thing for like, I try to stretch meals for four days in a row. I'm like hyper efficient about my food and my groceries. And so I like, I tend to make a lot of like the same like 
six, seven meals. That's great. On especially repeat. if you can do it. But and I end up making like a bunch of one random thing, like a million roasted carrots, and then I use those to like do other yeah. things. <laughs> or like just recently I've been wanting to learn how to smoke stuff. Mm-hmm. So like I smoked a brisket and a pork shoulder. <sighs> and now today I'm smoking another pork shoulder. And then mm. it's just like, oh, now I have like ten pounds of pork. <laughs> but then I can like get creative. I've been doing like fried pork with eggs and kimchi for breakfast. Oh my god, that sounds really good. It's so good. And then like if I want to do lunch or something, I can do like, you know, a pork sandwich or usually I'll do something different for lunch and then like use it for dinner. Hmm. But like eggs, kimchi and pork have been like my grind. That lately. sounds fantastic. And I don't usually eat breakfast, but that like kimchi in the morning hits different. Right. <laughs> Oh gosh! So, what has your day been like? We saw each other Thursday, but how oh, was your Friday? Right. A couple days. Uh, Friday Saturday? was good. Been working, getting some stuff wrapped up. I've been painting the last few days, right? Which I I hate. You're in painter's pants. Yeah, right I'm now. wearing white painter's pants right now. Why do painters wear white pants? Um, a lot of times, everything you're dealing with is like white primer or white walls. Oh right. And so it's just like easy to kind of mask it. Um. That makes sense. There's got to be a tradition to it, like, when it started, probably, like, the Union uniform or something weird like that. Mm, Yeah. But, you know, every now and again, I'll put on my painter's whites, even though I don't like to. (laughs) But yesterday, I got to do carpentry, which was nice. Right on. What were you working on? Uh, Working on trim, putting beams up. Um, Well, I put a beam up. The other guys were putting the beams up, and I just kind of watched and helped when they needed me. And uh, then a little painting. So it's been great. And then cooking. Now getting prepped. I got a friend coming over. Um, old friend from school. Nice. Who, who I found out she's been listening to the podcast. So oh, fun. Shout out to Faith. Thank you for listening. Great. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Nice. Nice, nice. Any, um, anything else cooking? I know that you have some exciting stuff. <laughs> some fun correspondence with a man that we've mentioned many times on the yes. show. My like one i don't even know celebrity crush not even crush but like the celebrity (laughs) i geek out over he's not really even a celebrity um but the john bachelor show which i have mentioned many times has been on air for he actually started he was started out really as like a fiction writer and it's like working on a novel and yada yada kind of in that world and then after 9-11, he had been in the media realm for a while and like wound up filling in for someone to cover their radio program um, just to like an- like read off the news and like announce what was going on. And it was so successful and he enjoyed it so much that he just started his own radio program and he's been on air ever since then. Um, now he's with CBS. Uh, but anyway, I've been listening to a show for many years. Um primarily like once I was in college and working in restaurants when I get off late his program always aired at like in the evenings um and so I would listen to it when I got off work anyway so I'm a big super fan of John Bachelor literally listen to it like most mornings um and have been for a very long time and um at my part of my job my organization I pitch our research fellows to like different media outlets um and I had the opportunity to pitch John Bachelor 
to have my CEO, Brian Yablonski, go on a show to talk about a recent issue of the magazine that we produce called Perk Reports. And I wasn't sure based on like the email address, I wasn't sure if I was going to be talking with him or his producer and I assumed his producer. Mm hmm. And it was freaking John Bachelor. That's awesome. Uh, and it sounded like his email read the way he talks, you know? So yeah. anyway, it was great. So I like exchanged emails with John Bachelor for a couple days in a row, coordinating things, which was really great. Heck yeah. I took a screenshot of it because <laughs> <laughs> I was so excited. I can't so, wait for the day that you are on the show. That's the goal. Yeah. One day. Hey, I got his email address now. So one day. <laughs> you can say things are getting serious. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So that's my that's my exciting news for the week. <laughs> that's wonderful. That's exciting and a yeah. step in the direction you went ahead, which is like yeah. the goal. Like everyone's goal should be like take steps towards what you want. Yeah. Oh well and on that front, I hopefully we'll have another op ed coming out next week on inflation and monetary policy. Wonderful. So we'll see. Do you know where it's going to be published if or? Yeah. Um, well, I don't know yet. Right I don't know yet. I've pitched it to a couple places. I really hope Fee picks it up. Um, oh, that it's be, a longer um, form yeah. piece. It's like it's over 1200 words, which is too lengthy for like a standard op-ed in a, in a newspaper. Mm -hmm. So it'll probably wind up in on an organization's website like Fee or or another think tank. So we'll right. see. Pretty yeah, cool. but we'll share that on Whiskey Bench's social media when the time comes. Exciting. Super <laughs> exciting. Yeah. So this is lovely. Do we have any other exciting news or updates for the week? I don't think so. Yeah, me neither. I can't think of anything right now. So I guess we're going to dive con in. Continue on. Yeah. So as I've mentioned now in multiple episodes, this is a continuation of our conversations surrounding political ideologies slash worldviews because there's some nuance there. They weren't necessarily all political to begin with and some of them were and then evolved. But tonight we are going to continue on with a topic surrounding fascism. Some of the roots of it, some of the key elements, some of the political views that fascists held, especially like turn of the century at its creation. Um, it's not an old ideology. It's younger than even communism, which already isn't that old. So I think, yeah, let's just, oh wait, I'm forgetting like an important thing. We're drinking a cocktail tonight. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Back up, guys. I didn't realize you were going to glaze right over that. Yeah, me neither. Everything I just said <laughs> holds true, but behold that thought. Tonight, we are drinking a gin cocktail, which is named Pleasant Demise, <laughs> which I thought was fitting. Right. Because fascism was defeated at the end of World War II. Obviously, fascism is still around, but like... And I guess we don't mean to imply that it's pleasant, <laughs> so... Yeah, the demise of it's pleasant. Right, yeah, I guess yeah. it's just how you interpret that. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I got the uh, recipe right in front of me here. The pleasant demise is one and a half ounces of London dry gin. Something like a beef eater gin would work well. 
We also have half an ounce of St. George Spiced Pear Liqueur, half an ounce of fresh lemon juice, and half an ounce of spiced grenadine, and then finish it off with four dashes of Peshad bitters. Uh, add them into a shaker, shake the living daylights out of them, strain them into a coupe, and then you can garnish with, I used a lemon twist because I didn't have any thyme sprigs, but it calls for Ooh. garnishing of a thyme sprig. Now, I did not have the ingredients because obviously there are a couple obscure ingredients. <laughs> but luckily enough, I happen to have a bottle of spiced pear gin that my mother made. And so I thought this, the spiced elements as well as the pear uh, was probably close enough to justify and I think it works. You can taste the pear a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's definitely elements of cinnamon and clove. But I would love to make it again in the future and actually make my own spiced grenadine. I think I've said before, homemade grenadine is like above and beyond better than any store-bought grenadine. How do you make grenadine? Uh, there's a couple ways you can do it. I usually do... Pomegranate juice and some pomegranate molasses, if you can find it. Hmm. I think you can sometimes find it in like the Asian aisle, Asian market. We don't have any Asian markets here, but that's where you would find it. Or maybe, you know, you could probably get it online easily. Uh, And then I bring it up to a boil or almost a boil, like a low simmer. I like to add sugar to increase the sweetness. And then usually once the sugar's dissolved and it kind of starts to thicken, I turn it off and I like to add powdered orange peel and rose petals. Oh. And steep it. Wow. Which kind of gives it like a nice floral undertone. And then you strain it off and then you're good to go. Pomegranate and rose. I never. It's really tasty in the orange peel as well. Yeah. It's really subtle. Hmm. Um, and so this homemade grenadine is similar. It's doing pomegranate juice, cinnamon sticks, cloves, orange peel, and then simmer that. And then add pomegranate juice. Pomegranate molasses, sugar, and thyme sprigs. So similar idea. They're just going with some thyme and warm spices instead of my like more floral hmm. take on it. But I think with the actual ingredients, it would be a little richer, uh, probably a little more spiced. You probably get more of the clove and cinnamon out of like making your own grenadine. But it was nice to try, and I'll definitely drink it again. I could see the thyme garnish mm-hmm. being a really nice right and especially like, just rounding the, it all out the nice aromatics that mm-hmm. you would get and yeah totally probably gnaw on it a little infused yeah. sprig at the end <laughs> how did your mom not to take us down a rabbit hole but briefly like how did your mom infuse that gin with the pear i actually don't know like, i'm what pretty is the, sure she, i know the herbal process i'm pretty sure she got just like a giant container and dumped a liter of gin into it. And then I think she just, just like soaked pears. She like added pears and probably like made, I think she made a dram, like a spiced dram, maybe with a clear grain alcohol or something. So she infused some sort of maybe even the gin with cinnamon and all this stuff and then just soaked it for a few weeks hmm. and then strained it out. Like you don't have to cook it. You can just mm-hmm. infuse it by having it. But honestly, I don't know if she cooked the pears first and added them right, or just I added wonder. the pears. Yeah. Because she does like really, she does this amazing like thyme and pear preserve that she makes. Mm, but it's it, but good. it's just like 
almost like canned pears. It's real like big chunks of pear, mm-hmm. but cooked down has like a nice sweet syrup with the thyme and the pear, and then she like puts it on top of brie. It's so good. This is this is a rabbit hole, but <laughs> so good. <laughs> I'm glad I know. I can picture your mom now. Now that I've met her. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she's lovely. So yeah, we're drinking a uh, pleasant demise this evening. Now I think I'm completely focused in. Great. All of the proper bookkeeping is in place. <laughs> the ledgers have been checked. Let's dive into some fascism. As I had mentioned briefly, this is not a particularly old ideology. There are some debates around its founding. I think most people would say that Mussolini 100% founded the fascist party and was kind of the brainchild of it. I believe 1919 is when he kind of presented it and started the fascist party. However, there are some people within the Italian fascist party that were talking about some of the ideas used in like Italian fascism as we know it today that was occurring a little bit earlier. So a philosopher Gentile in like the 1870s, Italian had some of these ideological views that were definitely drawn upon. And so Gentile described what was being used in fascism, which as we'll see later, Mussolini pick, picked and choose, chose, picked and chose, <laughs> picked and chose, 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 good <laughs> Lord, uh, a whole hodgepodge of things that he wanted to, to create this fascism as as he described it but as Gentile would describe it it was a method of governance whose goal was to protect from the inequality of capitalism and the class warfare found in socialism a system to unite everyone under a strong central government the state must therefore embody the people and further deduced all aspects of society's needs to be a part of the state trade federations Unions and all other organizations would need to be state-run entities. This would eliminate competition with the state and allow cooperation towards a common goal. As we've seen in the last few episodes, it's always the common goal or the greater good, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gentile also said that the state had no obligation to protect any freedoms of the individual to act as they wish. But instead, the priority is that the liberty of the state is preserved to allow it to enact its will towards its subjects. Good Lord. It eliminates individuality and replaces it with state identity. So this is, these, these were ideas that were floating around before 1919. Um, and then later on, fascism as we know it really was only understood retrospectively even during the age or during the time of the war, like fascism was something that was so new. I don't think people really understood it. And after Mussolini's death and after the destruction of the fascist state, did we kind of reflect on it and actually kind of accumulate kind of our thoughts or views of it as we are today, Mm -hmm. even though Mussolini wrote his fascist playbook or whatever he called it, the fascist manifesto. And obviously it was being implemented but the whole history of it's very convoluted and there was really no rhyme or reason to what Mussolini was doing as far as like coherence within an ideological viewpoint. It seemed like it was more of a reaction to things rather than something that was 
formed intentionally. Something to note in terms of like founding philosophy, there's a handful of different uh, historians who argue that a lot of that there are tenets of fascism that harken back or like can be sort of traced back to elements of the French Revolution and um, the Jacobin movement. Mm -hmm. Kind of this idea of like state power over people's lives and kind of like uh, allowing the state to make decisions for individuals because they have more perfect knowledge mm -hmm. um, is the theory. And there also was a, a non-Italian fascist party in in France um, known as Fascio, I guess, maybe is how you would pronounce that. George Valo, I don't know how to pronounce that either, okay. um, was the founder of it. And he, he as the founder, claimed that um, the roots of fascism stemmed from the late 18th century Jacobin movement and sort of spoke favor favorably of the totalitarian nature of that mm -hmm. movement. Um, and so that, in his mind, informed how he defined the fascist party that he founded. But definitely, like, throughout history, fascism, I think, took on many different forms obviously when it was adopted by hitler that took on a different form not entirely but it, it expressed itself differently certainly than mussolini's form of fascism right so yeah there's there's definitely a lot of variation there yes and then also even in that you know also elements of it are drawn from Machia machiavelli Machia machiavellian ideology um from his book like the prince talking about kind of how history is dictated by kind of more the corruption of man. So he, it draws a lot upon the perception that man is horribly corrupt, and then it kind of leans into almost harnessing that corruption, thus the promotion of violence and things like that. Oh, um, and like putting it to a productive end. Right, exactly. Like this is the nature of man, lean into it, which is very interesting. And have a centralized body that can control and manipulate right. that exactly yeah, right so you know Mussolini as a figure was someone who very much wanted power and his formation of the fascist movement was specifically tailored to gain power in a very recently in quote united Italy that did not want to be united and so he drew upon these ideas that revolutionists used of um, the, oh, what's it called? I got to look up the, uh, the word that it stems from, fascia or something, which basically just means like a bundle of grain. Bundle With, of sticks. Yeah, bundle of sticks. Yeah. And so it was mm -hmm. this, you right. know, the many are strong, the individual is weak, which is something that was not... Fas the, uh, fascist. F-A-S-C-E-S. -E is that the word you're thinking yes. of? Yes. Right. Um, Strength through unity. Yes. Symbolized as a single rod can be easily broken while a bundle, bundle is difficult to exactly. break. Exactly. Yeah, and right. this is something that people were familiar with. It had no negative connotation. Most people probably were actually kind of in favor of that ideology. Mm -hmm. So he just kind of leaned into it. He knew that was popular. Yeah. Which was one reason why he was able to, to gain fashion there. Mm -hmm. He also was kind of in line with the futurists. So he was very pro-industry and technology and production, which gave him favor among the industrialists and the futurists, which was an ideology that I think was founded, or the, the, the futurist manifesto was 1912. 
So this was popular at the time. So he drew that. He also was a traditionalist and was pro like farmer and wanted to build a strong farm state so he could gain favor from the farmers and, and the church because of the traditionalist nature of it. And at the time, I mean, he was a part of the socialist party and was like massively socialist at the founding of it. So he was able to get favor from the socialists. Then he was also nationalist. And so you start to get this really confusing picture where like everything, I don't know what Mussolini believed because as I've been researching it and listening to it, he like just started doing everything he could to get favor from all these groups. Hmm. And which results in a lot of contradictions because he was socialist, but then also within the fascist ideology, there's a lot of anti-socialist elements of it. They also were sworn enemies to the communists. Right. Which we talked about last, well, two ep- two long-form topics ago. Yeah. About the move through socialist is required for communism. And right, so right, right. you start to get this weird blend of what the heck does fascism mean even in the time that it was founded. Well, and it also, at least in, in Mussolini's Italy evolved throughout his reign too. Like you just noting that he initially sought favor from the church. He eventually turned on the church because the eventually the Catholic church recognized that like the violence and intimidation tactics that he employed, they no longer supported that. And, um, and then he eventually turned on the Catholic church and and persecuted Catholics in many ways. Um, Something else that I think there's so much to unpack and I know we're going to dive into everything that you've just touched upon Mm -hmm. um something else that i think is worth noting um because it's again a good example of how a lot of these ideologies that were burgeoning at the start of the 20th century were really reacting to to the world that they were in and and the world that their parents had lived through right um right so there's uh one historian, um, and I'm just going to be butchering some of these names, and I apologize, uh, Zeev Sternhell, who traces the some of the ideological roots of fascism back to um, like the late 19th century to what was known as the Fin de Siegel, probably not pronouncing that correctly, which that was kind of a... I don't know, maybe you could describe it as like a mood almost or a line of thought that was kind of based around a revolt against materialism, rationalism, positivism and bourgeois society, um, as well as uh, democracy. So they sort of rejected all of those things. It supported emotionalism, irrationalism, subjectivism and vitalism. So kind of a questioning of the status quo trying to reimagine there is no truth that sort of thinking this i found interesting he described the uh historian sternhell described this idea as uh, or the people who adhered to it regarded civilization as being in crisis and requiring a massive and total solution which is scary when you're you know living through a global crisis Mm -hmm. (laughs) that thinking can lead to um some scary outcomes um, and then this I really speaks to how a lot of these different ideologies that we've discussed have converge. Um, 
their intellectual school considered the individual as only part of the larger collectivity, which should not be viewed as a numerical sum of atomized individuals. So, again, valuing the greater good society at large over the will of the individual. Mm -hmm. Which, as we've said, is a theme. <laughs> right, exactly. Right, throughout these. Again, this is commonality between all these ideologies, mm -hmm. which even today would say are sworn enemies of each other. Right. Right. Very similar in many ways. Yeah. So I have just a few notes. I have nine like key tenets of fascism based on the fascist manifesto and Mussolini and kind of what he described his ideology as. And then I also have, what did I end up? Eight party goals of World War II fascist Italy. Just as like a... a a foundation and we can dive into which ones we want or just use it as kind of a uh, summary but so right here um, as far as the, the tenets of the party or what fascism is in Mussolini's mind is one extreme nationalism that is the worship and absolute control of the state two incredibly pro-war in fact they kind of are one of the main tenets of fascism is action first and then like goals or results later. There was kind of this weird push or desire, or I guess this view that war was a positive and that there was this kind of like renewing nature to war that like made people not morally better, but just like better people. So it was very violent, like. Pro-war is, is a key tenet. Yeah. Three, militant organization in almost all aspects of everything. Four, it required an iron-fisted iron leader or leaders. Five, violence in politics. That is, violence is the best form of propaganda, and it is a much better way than democracy for the will of the people to be accurately demonstrated. And that kind of ties into the pro-war absolute celebration of violence six a push for a single national identity seven anti-democracy in nature mm -hmm. eight aggressive foreign policy meaning land conquest for growth and a good nation is always ready to battle its neighbors nine cultural superiority not racial and this is something very interesting that i found as i was researching this Mussolini's main tenet, and even though his actions didn't reflect it, he was very open about his ally, Nazi Germany, and their, their racial superiority, superiority ideas being very silly. Right. Um, even though he did, he did implement racial laws in Italy, but really, I don't think that he believed in that. Specifically, he said along the lines, subjugation of the individual to the state is always acceptable but not on the basis of racial identity. He didn't think that a state was capable of identifying with a race alone. It was more of a cultural thing. Right. He believed in cultural superiority, but yes. not racial. Right. And I think that in part might have been rooted in the, like, at, the, at that time, Southern Europeans, Italians, right. were in, like, the vogue thinking of eugenics throughout like America, what was adopted by Nazi Germany. Right. Like 
they were considered second class, Italians were. So Mussolini didn't subscribe to like that thinking, but he definitely believed that the Italians, the, you know, they stem directly from the Roman Empire, like they, they were culturally superior. Right. And again, this ties back to a recently united, begrudgedly, Italy, where you had people that had right. very regionally grouped identities. You had Tuscans and Venetians and, you know, Sicilians, and they were tight-knit regions that had their re- the very distinct cultural identities. And I think part of that non-racial thing was, was an attempt to kind of unify further, right? You, I could see infighting yeah. being like, oh, no, the Tuscans are way different than, you know, the northern... You know, northern Italians versus southern Italians or coastal Italians Damn versus Sicilians. mountain Italians. Right. right. And so um, <laughs> I could see how that could get messy. Yeah. From from his point. Right. There's some nuance there. Right. Fascism, as we view it, the Nazis. is not the same as the founding of fascism. Right. It was implemented differently. Right. In different places. Yeah, exactly. And so here are... And and I'll just say too, as you've noted, it was less of like a ideology and more of like a solution to a perceived problem. Right. The ideology... So that's why it's less cohesive across how it's implemented. And this is part of the tenets of just action and then action and destruction as a goal, violence as a goal, and then... You figure out later what's happening. Was violence a goal or did they just view it as necessary uh, to accomplish their goals? Necessary. Yeah. And, okay. and one of the tenets, which is interesting for a, a future conversation we're going to have, is like tenets of fascism have no real like plan in place for replacing systems that they despise. The goal is just destroy them and rebuild. Mm-hmm. The best thing you can do is destroy and rebuild. And that is a key tenet of fascism. Don't ask questions first, right? Action before thought. Just a little foreshadowing. (laughs) I know Kat knows what's up. (laughs) (laughs) But here are some, um, some party goals of World War II fascists, which, as I've mentioned before many times, when you start lying these ideologies side by side and the goals of the party... Lines start to blur, and if you take away, you know, one or two of the questionable things, it gets cloudy real fast. So here's the eight goals of the fascist party. An eight-hour workday. A strong minimum wage. Expansion of railroads. Lowering the retirement age from 65 to 55. A national militia. Policy to help support Italian culture, extreme taxation of the rich, and seizure of religious property. Centralized authority. I hope people listening, no matter what side you're on, can start to see that all of these political parties, the modern parties that we know today, from the, the communism to progressivism to the Democrats to the Republicans to, you know, there's like a lot of tenets of, you know, kind of what we discussed last time of progressivism that are tied into the fascism. And as we continue our conversation tonight, the idea that you can just call someone fascist because they, you know, 
care about a certain thing or they have some of the views of fascism is very dangerous because if you start to dive into it, I can call a lot of people fascists. Right. Right. If you think that, you know, workers shouldn't work long hours and be limited to an eight hour workday. And you believe that the state should enforce that. Yeah. Or you should tax the rich. Or maybe we should should lower the retirement age. (laughs) Right. Things that in and of themselves aren't good or bad. You know, we can argue about this. Doesn't make you fascist. But that's kind of the the logic that's applied to calling people fascist. Right. So careful. You might get called fascist. Yeah. (laughs) And a point that we've made before, but like abusing language is a disservice because eventually... That word is thrown around so often, it doesn't really mean anything any longer. And it should mean something because it's an ugly road to go down. So it's worth, yeah, mm-hmm. being aware of what it really means and not abusing it. And, you know, another another key tenet of fascism, which is part of what helped Mussolini gain favor among all of these groups, was a push to rally around a common enemy which is a tactic that a lot of ideologies use but that is one of the thing it kind of because you don't have the individual you don't have personal responsibility and so part of the goal of fascism is to create some sort of enemy that people can rally around and a lot of times it's you know immigrants in a lot of the cases even with Things like communism, they weren't pro-immigrant. Fascism, not pro-immigrant. And that doesn't, that does not mean racial, right? Immigrants have a weird, I think people have a really narrow-minded view of immigrants. Like if someone's maybe strict on immigration, it's like, oh, you don't like, you know, non-white people or whatever. But it's like, there's a lot of people in the world that are capable of immigrating. Right. It's not so limited to it's a particular not, race. Like, right, yeah. right, right, right. But that is, I mean, some of it. It could be rallying around an idea, a person, in the example of, of fascists, like the communists and, and the problems that they viewed. It was like, hey, we hate the communists. Let's rally around that. Or in the case of the Nazis, like we hate Jewish people. We hate disabled people. We hate homosexuals. Like creating a boogeyman and then oh yeah that's that. like politics 101 right exactly and like that's again not a, unique to fascism but one of the right 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 yeah um another thing that is a key tenet and kind of a good maybe segue into understanding the differences between fascism and communism so the fascists as you noted believed in sort of corporatism yes um so the thinking was that the that the economy should should be subordinate to the state and used to the state's end. They did not believe in the communist idea that there should that property rights should not exist. Right? They did not believe in that. They believed that right. there should be some private property. Yes. However, but they didn't believe in like a free society or or a market based system. They were highly critical of capitalism. So right, which is they believed that um, that sort of independently owned businesses must work under the direction and control of the state. So that's actually very similar to socialism. Exactly. And as you noted, 
Mussolini, for example, was a socialist. Right. Right. Um, at least at, in his early days. Correct. Um, and even though later on they said it was anti-socialist, in practice, it's not. No, in and terms so of how the economy is organized, exactly. it's almost identical. And that's yeah. why you start getting into this. There's all sorts of inter- internal contradictions within the ideology itself. Yeah, so that's, so, I mean, that's kind of, well, before we segue into that, I want to just talk about, like, sort of, kind of the impetus for it, and mm-hmm. um, we had noted how, like, it was sort of a reaction to the world around it, and World War One played a big role in that, sort of the mass mobilization of society during World War One mm-hmm. created an opening for authoritarians, um, and I think... Mussolini and people like him, including Hitler, recognized that like society hadn't there hadn't been a war fought that way before um, and society hadn't been so fully mobilized to assist in the war efforts Mm -hmm. as it had been then. And I think they were sort of inspired by the way that private citizens and industry had been kind of made wholly subservient to the state and it presented an opportunity for them just kind of reimagine society and and rethink how to structure society and like what functions it could serve beyond wartime and part of the division between the communists and the fascists at the time um stems from from their different positions regarding world war one um the communists were anti-interventionists and the fascists were Mm pro-interventionists and so which speaks to what you've described about how Mussolini believed like that war was a good thing and that like conquering territory was a goal in and of itself for the state. Right. The com and, and where the anti-interventionist um, approach from the communists or like stance kind of plays into the rise of communism by the end of world war one, Russia had been so just like, I mean, they lost millions of young men in the war effort i want to say maybe that's i can look that up quickly sure while you're looking that up the interesting about being non-interventional is is interesting in today's kind of political climate because there's this confusion that nationalism equals fascist and if you're non-interventional you get accused of being nationalist which is oftentimes lazily associated with fascism. Repeat that. If you are non-interventional, it's easy to be accused of being nationalist, which can then mean that you are lazily interpreted as being fascist. Right. Or, again, this is just the climate we're in, you can be a warmonger and interventional (laughs) and be accused of being imperial an imperialist or a, something right. like that, and then be fascist. Right. So damned if you do, damned if you don't. Well, because in our like kind of convoluted bias way of, we're not even biased, but well, yeah, bias, biased <laughs> and limited way of defining politics in this country today. Like basically those two groups are being, you're either a populist or you're an imperialist is what you're describing, right? right? Exactly. And both of those things in the mind of the people who are loudest are both of those things sit on the right end of the political spectrum. And there's kind of this 
and fascism in popular understanding sits on the right Mm -hmm. end of the political spectrum. I found the number ranging somewhere between 15 to 22 million casualties in World War One yeah. alone. So my point just being not to get stuck on Russia because we've already talked about that a little bit, but um, they were so decimated by the war effort that that presented the communists with an opportunity. That was the grievance of the people in the nation at the time, and they were able to coalesce and form and gain power around that issue. Yes. So, and I think it was a different situation in Italy. So for Mussolini and for the fascists, they had an opportunity presented to them at the end of World War One, and it was just kind of a different interpretation, mm-hmm. and they were able to coalesce around intervention rather than non-intervention. Yes. And I want to real quick just touch base on what you had mentioned about, you mentioned, I, excuse me for, for not listening particularly well, you just mentioned something about right-wing politics. Fascism just being R- right. identified on the identified right end on of the, the right. spectrum, yeah. But this is important because at its founding, it was completely non-specific there were yeah left-leaning fascists and right-leaning fascists yes there were and he hadn't Mussolini had no interest in picking a side what ended up happening though is that as fascist the fascist party lean you know really leaned into the anti-communist view mm-hmm. they were forced to shift more towards the right to find allies against communism however as i think we're describing here fascism is not so much about left or right but a lot more about tactics on how to achieve your goals so i think again in a future episode i would like to make the argument that like today we say fascists are right leaning, but I don't think so. I think there are left leaning fascists and right leaning fascists, and it's a means of your goals instead of like you have these political views, and that makes you fascist. I think you noting that it's that maybe a better way to understand fascism is that, or what distinguishes it is its tactics. I think that's mm-hmm. actually like really helpful because as you noted. The the end goal, there many of them overlap with a lot of these other ideologies, including communism. That is, it was eventually opposed to, mm-hmm. um, but their tactics and approach to getting there all, all actually were very similar too, but diverged in in meaningful right. ways. Different right? goals, but similar tactics. No, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying similar goals, different Diff- tactics. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, I mean there are there is overlap in some of the tactics, right. of course, but. But like abolishing property rights was, they didn't, they didn't, you know, go, fascists didn't believe in that and didn't go that route. Mm-hmm. So there's some important differences, of course. But I think, yeah, you're framing that the tactics were different is helpful. Another, just on the fascist left versus the fascist right, my understanding is that the fascist left at the time were committed to advancing national syndicalism as a replacement for parliamentary liberalism. Um, in order to modernize the economy and advance the interests of workers and the common people. Whereas the right were for like a complete dictatorship and they sought to, well, there was a split on the right there. Some of them were for a complete dictatorship and some were for kind of the corporate state, which we've described that would replace the liberal state in Italy while 
basically allowing like elites to still exist so long as they were operating under the direction of the centralized authority of the state. Um, another thing that it was definitely responding to was the Great Depression, too. I think that was another moment that marked a turning point in the thinking of the time um, with the people who opposed liberal democracies, so both communists and fascists. They looked at the Great Depression and said, like, that is that is the failure of market capitalism and that is the failure of limited decentralized authority like that it produces there's these inherent faults in it and therefore you need a stronger more centralized state to manage those risks and Mm -hmm. prevent recessions and depressions from from happening absolutely which at the time as we learned progressives also in the united states came to a similar conclusion i would argue both fascism and communism are just maybe farther down the spectrum of progressivism, but the idea that you need more state control and intervention into the economy and into individual people's lives and valuing the collective over the individual, all of these ideologies share those beliefs. Right. And, you know, I think you and I both would argue that it requires that because all of these ideologies are something that are not conducive to the nature of man. You're trying to force something that isn't natural. And so you have to have state control and coercion and some sort of authoritarian leadership, all of these things. And so I think that's a decent kind of rundown of Italian fascism. And that's founding. Do you want to dive into Nazism at all and discuss that? Um, yes, I think there's yes, but I think there's a couple other things okay. I'd like to touch upon that kind of maybe stays in like the Italian realm. Um, one way, sort of on this on the idea of the of like kind of like the um, crony capitalist like state control of the economy. They were able to garner, the fascists in Italy were able to garner support from big business because there were, communism was burgeoning in Italy at the same time it was, you know, across Europe. Um, And so the large corporations there feared kind of worker uprisings and therefore they feared communism because they thought it would disrupt their business, etc. So... Really, from what you've described, it sounds like Mussolini was just like a good or like community organizer and like political activist and figured out how to like what he needed to do to garner support from like the right people yeah. to maintain power, or to gain power and maintain it. Um, so. So he exploited the fear, like the fear that businesses had of communism, mm-hmm. which is rallying around the common enemy. Exactly. Right. Um, and, and the larger corporations were willing to go in, to get in bed with big government because they're able to maintain, create and maintain a monopoly at that point. Right. So long as they're willing to go along with what Mm -hmm. the state tells them to do, which obviously can get messy down the road, but often like 
we see crony capitalism emerge completely. I mean, the the businesses that are chosen are, I mean, they don't mind it, right? They don't have any, they don't really have to worry about competition at that point. And obviously the consumer is hurt in that, in that, in that system, I guess. Um, but, but it's relatively easy for big business to get in bed with big government. And that doesn't, and that is not a market economy that is crony capitalism. And, um, in many ways, again, that's, it's similar to socialism in that it's, um, state managed economic activity and like select businesses that are allowed to operate, not autonomously, but like, you know, they're allowed to own the property and maintain, own the business. Um, but they're directed by the state. Another item that I would like to touch upon, um, kind of the connection to American progressivism at the time. So similar to communism, like as these things were emerging and even as some of the horrors were taking place um, before it was really known to the wider world, a lot of these leaders that were dictators were admired in the U.S. and even some other parts of Europe. So Roosevelt actually referred to Mussolini as admirable and said that he was deeply impressed by what Mussolini had accomplished. Mussolini wrote about Roosevelt saying that he was, quote, reminiscent of fascism in the principle that the state no longer leaves the economy to its own devices. Without question, the mood accompanying the sea change resembles that of fascism, referring to FDR's Mm -hmm. like New Deal, touching upon sort of the Nazi take uh, of like state media at the time. under the Nazi party repeatedly praised Roosevelt and his adoption of quote national socialist strains of thought in his economic and social policies and quote the development toward an authoritarian state based on the demand that collective good is put before individual self-interest. So again, it's like there are these very, this theme of devaluing the individual. So also the um, sort of another quote that, points to some of the overlap between progressive thinking of the time in the United States and fascism. The National Recovery Administration, which was um, the the agency at the beginning of the New Deal um, that sort of created cartels um, between big business and big government, basically praised fascism and at one point wrote, quote, the fascist principles are very similar to those we have been evolving here in America. So again, just acknowledging that overlap. Which I think is something that, especially in our like modern discussion of what fascism is and just use of that term is often overlooked. Yes. Um, so. Totally. And as you were just mentioning progressivism, this is a good segue into the Nazism because, you know, People, I think, seamlessly associate fascism with Nazism, which they have a lot of the same tactics and tenets and things like that. But there's also, it goes beyond that. They're not just fascist. Um, They share a lot of the views that the progressives had, even within America, the, the progressives around the world, right? So just like I did with the Italian fascism, I've got 
a couple tenets of the Nazi party, party goals, and then, well, we'll start with kind of tenets of Nazism, and then I'll go into party goals. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be back to our conversation. If you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts. There you can leave us a five-star rating and a one or two sentence review to help others find the show. Thank you to Reagan James for the use of our theme music, The Habit, off her album, Message. Find her work on Spotify and Apple Music. And thanks to Highline Media Network for having us as a founding podcast. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, Ravel. I'm giving oh, yeah. myself a self-care day. Yeah. You know, it's like... Oh, I hate... I hate, Can I just... <laughs> oh, can I just say how much I freaking hate that expression of like, Go off. I'm going to have a self-care day. Have I ever told you my definition of self-care? I know. I think you have, but give it again. Yes, please. Self-care is creating the life that you don't want to escape from. Oh, I like that. Self-care should never be a random band-aid treatment implementation like mm. and now back to our conversation number one within the nazi party was racial superiority and there's a lot of history that i don't think we can get into tonight just about germany as a whole and the results of world war one and the rise of hitler and the anti-semitism that was already frankly global but really pungent in germany part of um, you know the military training that was involved throughout the country um, promoting anti-semitism all these things and obviously the the nazi view wasn't limited to just the jews like it was racial superiority for all other than you know the aryan race they were obsessed with purity there's a lot of interesting stuff you know just strict rules and whatnot throughout Nazi Germany that kind of leaned into that. They were for territorial expansion, the idea that you needed to grow your nation, right? Like conquer and spread out, right? Um, which, again, that shares a kind of goal with, with fascism. You have uh, number four, it's founded in social Darwinism, which is where it ties into the progressivism of natural selection and eugenics. Right. They were kind of a futurist group, as you can just see through scientific advancement within the party. They were futurists. They technology and innovation and all this stuff were massive tenets of the culture. And tied into that was the social Darwinism and the eugenics and engineering. And it wasn't just racial superiority. It was even within their race, in quote, like genetic superiority. That's why they were so against anybody with disabilities, physical or mental, um, fill in the blank. Very strict on that. And then you can see horrible, horrible implementation of, like we had mentioned, even the United States sterilization and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, weed, um, weeding out the quote-unquote undesirables. Right. Yeah. And then five, a centralized government, which is a key tenet of all of these ideologies, uh, and control of the press, which again is essential to... Controlling the population. Mm -hmm. Communism, fascism, Nazism, progressivism. You have to control the media. And that's a, a key tenet. And so you can tell, like, with the racial superiority and the social Darwinism, 
that's where like the red flags come up and it's really like, whoa, things are getting weird. But again, you just put down some of their goals on paper and stuff starts to get real weird real quick. So here's some some ideals of a a society goal or policy um, for Nazi Germany. One, German priority in hiring, which people are implementing now. Hiring on the base of some priority, depending on what institutions or, or, you know, whatever. That's a strategy that's used by many people. Like a racial priority, you mean? Uh, yeah, or, or other, other things. There's, you know, other priorities. Um, two, work was required to receive welfare. Three, profit sharing for companies. Four, better retirement benefits. Five, support for small businesses. Six, more land for small-time farmers. Seven, ensuring lower rents. Eight, strict laws and death penalties for crimes. Nine, free education, including college. Ten, benefits for mothers. Eleven, more useful college degrees promoted. Twelve, abolition of child labor. Thirteen, mandatory sports and exercise. And fourteen, public ownership of department stores, which is just like a weird thing that they were into well public ownership of probably larger more dominant businesses right exactly yeah exactly that list is like confusing because if you just read it honestly if you pretty much just leave out like german priority in hiring and maybe uh stricter laws and death penalties that's a list that any progressive would be into right again blurring the lines between a lot of these ideologies Right. And all of these ideologies, again, were looking, were trying to find a way to improve society. They were coming off on the heels of a global, devastating, never before seen on that scale war. Yep. A Great Depression, again, that was because I think I think it's because it was this intersection. There's obviously been periods of time of like genocide and all out war and just like brutality and plague and economic downturns throughout all of human history. But I think the way in which these things happen on such a global scale and such an interconnected scale for the time, I think that's what that it's what made it feel so much bigger, I think, to people um, and made it have more impact. And I think all of these ideologies were just responding to that and that devastation and trying to find like an alternative. And it's interesting that so many of them decided we can't leave choices up to individuals. We have to have some sort of like people who know better have to make decisions. And then it manifested in different ways in different parts of the world. Yes. And I think the Nazis would not have at the time considered themselves or identified as fascists. uh, Right. Like they because as you noted, I mean, sort of maybe philosophical underpinnings of fascism emerged and were percolating before Mussolini, but sort of like the official fascist party right. was founded by Mussolini. So Hitler Which, would have viewed Hitler viewed that as like sort of a separate right, because, political movement. They, Cause the rise of Nazism. And like I said, what just gets labeled as fascism was at the exact same time as fascism in Italy, the, the Nazi, view was was rising in germany 
but they they were separated. Right. And it's not like at some point it was like now Germany's adopting the fascist manifesto and we're fascist. Like similar but like they're not they're different. Right. Which is just a nuance, right? I think it's important to to be honest with it. Like they share things just like they do with progressive and like that, but like Nazism is different than fascism. Right. But similar. And that's why we're including it in this. But yeah, they're they're authoritarian in nature. That's that's both of those parties. And mm-hmm. so is communism. And right. honestly, I would argue progressivism is authoritarian in nature. Yeah. It has to be. But with fascism and Nazism, it's obsession with military, again, war and territory conquest, anti individuality, and then strong leadership, like requires a strong dictator. Mm-hmm. And those are the similarities. And then they diverge. Right. And I think because the Nazis had implemented, like, all of these different ideologies and their sort of leaders were also operating within, some were operating within an existing system and some were not, right? So, like, Mm -hmm. in the United States, there were stronger institutions in place that insulated the public from the more authoritarian-esque ideologies from becoming as intrusive and as violent as they were able to become in Italy and Germany. Yes. But the idea of like racial superiority was here in America. Yeah. Right. They weren't able to round. It was in Japan, the Japanese. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It was among the, the black Israelites. It was, I mean, racial superiority was something that was thanks to social Darwinism and progressivism saturated all across the globe. And so it's important to to understand that. Like, this is stuff that was causing issues all across the world. Yes, definitely. I still, we should, because you've talked about this a few times now on this show, and I would be, we should have a conversation at some point about your thinking on, like, the sort of social Darwin thinking and the Enlightenment and how you think that that contributed to, like, more racial animus than maybe existed previously am i characterizing that uh correctly? yeah for sure yeah i think that would be interesting and i could be wrong but my sense is that that is something that has existed since the beginning of time but maybe it's been amplified because of particular moments in history but yeah i guess my point was just that like thankfully in the u.s we had institutions in place to insulate us from from some some of the more grotesque forms of this thinking but uh, but there was a lot of similarities in and even admiration for the fascist state for the nazis until we went to war with them Mm -hmm. um for the communists until we realized how many people they had starved (laughs) you know so yeah a lot of it was in vogue for a long time um and thankfully it couldn't the people who were inclined to think in that authoritarian way couldn't fully act on those thoughts here in the United States. But it was percolating. It was. Yeah. And even though maybe the authoritarian nature wasn't implemented, again, the social Darwinism was. Well, I was going to say not. I think it was implemented, just not yeah. to the same extent. No, right? not the same extent. Like, you know, I mean, FDR, what FDR did with the New Deal, which that's a whole other conversation, but like. His, I would argue that his entire approach to the Great Depression prolonged it and 
but it like radically changed our understanding of like the government's role in people's lives and in the economy. Mm-hmm. And it's it was just a handful of steps removed from what took place in other parts of Europe at that same time. Same with the eugenics movement. We were sterilizing tens of thousands of people. We weren't rounding them up and putting them in gas chambers, but we were sterilizing people with the explicit purpose of like preserving one particular race. So, yeah, you know, a lot of this stuff was here. It just wasn't able to be executed to the same degree. Yep, exactly. Do you want to have a conversation about why fascism is identified on the right or just like the idea that it's on the right end of the political spectrum? Uh, yeah, for sure. I'm not super prepared for that. Do you mind prompting that? Or yeah, if you totally. have some questions, I can I, well, chime in here. And Yeah, I think, um, I think this could be fodder for another episode too, but like there seems, I just, I, I don't think that our, our framing of there being a political spectrum is sufficient. Right. Because you, as you noted, I don't think that classifying fascism on the right and it being the like opposite of communism is accurate i don't think that's accurate and because the because the fascists were also opposed to classical liberalism in -hmm. addition to communism right so it's like where so where would they and i would argue like classical liberalism is what would be the hard opposite of communism and I think Mussolini, I feel like I read this somewhere that he even described fascism as like sitting somewhere outside, like being, I think he might've even described it as like either in the middle or like he tried to disassociate it from being on the right or the left. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like, I just, I know Hennings brought up kind of that horseshoe theory and I feel like maybe that's more like a more accurate way of trying to frame it. Because there's so many similarities between these ideologies that like, I don't know. I feel like if they're, if they're clustered on a chart somewhere, they're all clustered fairly close together. Right. Exactly. Um, And then there's like people who believe in individual autonomy to like a radical degree. Those are on the hard other end. Right. And I wonder if like the fascists are defined as far right because they were just because they were opposed to the communists. Um, But but like again there's kind of the tactics that they employed were were similar to the communists both were opposed to liberalism so as we've noted before i think it's more of like an individual versus the collective good spectrum not yeah exactly right and left as we've defined it this is interesting because it is something that i don't know if i have a good answer to why it's associated with the right but like like you said, I don't believe it is. Right? Like. Well, and like, what is even the right? Well, well, fair enough. You know, like I'd probably be classified as on the right and I don't identify as such. Uh, Same. Right? So like. <laughs> I'm sure that there are people that would think that I'm like alt-right. 100%. Yikes. <laughs> right? Why do you think that? Because uh, like I'm kind of anti-government and which is funny because like well being right is not being anti-government it's being it's the same no. right they want stricter government right yeah they're for government control right they um, just have different again, societal it's a confusion. values you know i'm pro yeah. second amendment i like guns i'm like pro militia right. yeah 
And so there's like little things that might share, but like, guess what? You on the far left, like share stuff as well. Right. So it's this, this lack of, of nuance. Yeah. Um, and and again, it's, it's talking about like the shift of the Overton window. Again, people are going to argue with this, but like we have progressively gone as normal further and further left. And so when you hold, you know, pretty moderate views or whatever, you can get lumped into weird groups that you obviously don't want to be associated with. Right. Well, and I think, not to sound like a conspiracy theorist, (laughs) but there does seem to be an intentional narrative being shared that, Mm -hmm. that people who are for a limited government or like even, you know, radical anarchists that are like anti-state authority entirely. Right. Are lumped into far right extremist groups, mm-hmm. which um, I'm excited about our anarchist conversation because it's so far from that. Well, and I think yeah, and I think that whole anarchy conversation is like, I think there's like a lot of misunderstanding around that mm-hmm. because Antifa defines itself as anarchist. Yeah, but to be anarchist, you have to be nonviolent, which is something that I don't think is widely understood. Right, so exactly. yeah, totally. But yeah, there is a concerted effort to sort of lump in. I mean, even uh, was it John Brennan who when after January 6th was talking about how and they've done it, something I'll share on our social media feed soon, um, but they've created like a new terrorist unit uh, or like terrorist watch investigative unit within the FBI for domestic terrorism. And part of how they like classify kind of characteristics of potential domestic terrorists are people who are opposed to the state. Sure. And John Brennan in some, I think it was like CNN or something. He was doing an interview after January 6th and was lumping this group together of, of what would be considered like Trump supporting right wing extremists. And he referred, he said, even libertarians <laughs> fall into this group. Right. So, I, yeah, I think we, to our detriment, use a really, really broad brush to define these things today. And it would be great if there was like a reimagining of what the political quote unquote spectrum is, like at least within the United States, which there's like, so much more nuance than we there talk is. about. And again, like not lacking this nuance ends up feeding into uh, using fascist tactics, right? And and by that I mean like again, so like you know, violence is a justified means of threatening your opponent. You know, on top of that, like you know, a free and competitive media is an enemy of the state, which we're which you can see all across, right? Uh, and like I just said, like encouraging violence for the greater good or or you know for your cause is justified. Sorry. No matter what side you're on. Violent riots are okay so long as they're done in the name of something that is deemed good. Right. Yeah. That's fascist tactics. Straight up. Independent journalists that undermine the monopoly of news dissemination that mainstream media has is right. dangerous. Yes. Yeah. And then another thing is like the, the fascist state, like in its tactic book, says that chaos is engineered to incite fear and fuel extreme measures. Well, right. Isn't like that there's um, a pretty well established or like known tactic of authoritarian regimes to 
to create so much chaos Mm -hmm. on the streets and people's day-to-day lives that you wear them down to the point where they're just they're desperate for some semblance of normalcy yes that they're willing to accept just about any terms right to main to get back to what is normal yeah exactly Um, so a lot of groups will use that tactic of like Sending out the boogeymen to go and yeah. like rile things up and yeah. burn shit down and assault people. And then the political savior can emerge and yeah. say like, I have the solution. Here's, Meanwhile, uh, he's running the, right. the bully boys on the street. Namely three letter agencies. Yeah. <laughs> within the United States. I know. Frankly, I'm just going to put that out there. Yeah. It Guys. For the last 70 years, it's known that three letter agencies have used that tactic. Well, and it's so funny all across too. the globe, right? And within that's what makes me borders. laugh because yeah. there's plenty of people who are willing to acknowledge the role that like the CIA has played in destabilizing nations around the world and like right. orchestrating coups, right? Sure. But those same people often are totally unwilling to entertain the thought of that happening within the United States. Right. Exactly. And again, I'm just saying like these are fascist tactics. Yeah. And like you know, there's the one side that is like, oh. Trump supporters are fascists. Some of them are. But like, so are Biden supporters. Right. And again, see, and again, it's like, that's why it doesn't fall on a political spectrum. Right. Yeah. Or that's why I shouldn't say that. That's why our political spectrum is insufficient in accurately identifying and articulating what these ideologies mean. Exactly. And how, and like what they mean in the real world, like how they're actually employed. Mm-hmm. If you were, it would be so interesting to do like a poll, a national poll gauging like people who are for giving authority and, and, and power to the state in some form to solve the, their perceived problems versus people who are fearful of that and would rather mm-hmm. have those problems solved at like, you know, sort of a more localized level. Because there would be a ton of overlap between the right and the left, Democrats and Republicans, right? who would be willing to give up authority and power to the state to solve the problem. They Abs- might want absolutely. a different solution. Exactly. Right? Democrats and Republicans might want a different outcome. Yeah. But they're willing to use the same tactics of, like, authoritarian rule. Right. Use the military or the police or whatever institutions are in place for your goal. Right. It's easy to say, like, you're pro-police or you're anti-police, but, like, both sides seem to have no problem with the use of force against civilians if it's for the right cause, right? Yeah, right. Which is something to be weary of. Totally. And so when we wrap up tonight, I do have a nice little positive thing. (laughs) <laughs> kind of the counter to fascism, the radical counter to fascism that I that I think is like truly it's kind of the radical counter to all of these ideologies. But, you know, we'll get there. <laughs> I wonder if I have any other good notes here. Do you have anything else that we want to talk about? Just. Well, I had originally um, and we discussed this before we started recording, but I feel like we should note it. I had originally thought it'd be interesting to kind of dive into a conversation about 
the Antifa or anti-fascist movement yes. in the U.S. Um, I'm very excited for that, and it's something that I'm going to lean into very hard. Yeah. Because, can I? Yeah, go for I'm it. I'm just going to lean into it right now, and we'll talk about it more. Like, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> you cannot change my mind that the anti-fascist movement is anything other than 100% pure fascism. I mean, especially with what you've laid out about, like, the tenets of violence as mm-hmm. like a means for political ends is like that's exactly what they do right yeah like so you, i was you just, have these groups you've got antifa battling like the proud boys or whatever other groups that weird group that was looked like postal men that were marching oh, yeah. like freaky weird oh, the supremacists or yeah something like weird that. supremacist groups yeah y'all are the same i know that's frankly. the thing they don't realize it I know. So, like, I'm here to denounce far right, in quote, and I'm here to denounce Antifa. Yeah. That's my official statement. Totally. Agree with you 100%. <laughs> yeah. So, so my point just being, this warrants a much bigger discussion. So, we're not going to dive into it tonight. No. But I think um, worth kind of teasing that at some point we're going to have a conversation about yes. the Antifa movement. Exactly. What it means. But I'm really glad we had this conversation tonight because this... This whole idea of of kind of having a series on these different political ideologies, that was your idea, Torna, but I had been wanting to talk about fascism in particular for a very mm-hmm. long time because it's used as a slur in the political realm very, very regularly Oh yeah, to a degree where I don't think it means anything anymore. Um, and I think it's a real disservice to misuse and cheapen that the word that way um, because it's important to understand what fascism really is. Um, I think it's an ugly thing. Um, yes. And I would say I'm anti-fascist, <laughs> but I'm not <laughs> in support of Antifa, right? Right, exactly. So there's like just a ton of nuance there. And I, I'm hoping that these conversations, they've been enlightening for me and valuable. And I'm hoping that they're helpful and informative to, to other people listening. Exactly. And so I have a quote from George Orwell which ties perfectly into this misuse of the word fascist, labeling people as fascist. And again, hopefully as you're seeing this, like the lines start to blur and it gets difficult to pin someone who is in quote fascist. And you can't just label someone on the right fascist and say that someone on the left is incapable of being fascist. It's silly. Right. And George Orwell in 1944 was very aware of this. The same thing was happening in 1944 as it is today with the term fascist. And so here's a quote from George Orwell in 1944. Quote, If you examine the press, you will find that there is almost no set of people, certainly no political party or organized body of any kind, which has not been denounced as a fascist during the past 10 years. I have heard it applied to farmers, shopkeepers, social credit, corporal punishment, Fox hunting, bullfighting, Kipling, the writer, Gandhi, Chiang Kai-shek, homosexuality, youth hostels, astrology, women, dogs, and I do not know what else. (laughs) Wow. And if that's not telling of how confusing fascism is as a whole, I don't know what is. Yeah. Like, Like I said, it's something that really has to be reflected on retrospectively after that whole era. Of trying to understand, like, what is this? And I think, hopefully, we unwrap that a little bit. Yeah. Like, it's not quite maybe as we perceive it today. That it is a means of an end. 
Um, it's a tactic. It's it's a an operation, so to say. It's a way of organizing society. Right. Exactly. Which yeah. all these end up kind of being. Right. Yeah. And you know, with communism and progressivism and you know social darwinism and the fascism like all of these really have this requirement of not being individuals and predominantly having some sort of enemy to be fueled against right 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 and so my suggestion is the radical suggestion that i mentioned earlier goes back to the christian idea of loving your neighbor like, I know that maybe is cheesy, but like, if you are willing to give an inch on someone that you don't like and use that as a justification to use force against them or to exclude them in some way or anything like that, you are leaning into these authoritarian ways of, of viewing the world. And so the only way to combat that is to truly love your enemy, because if you're willing to use force against your enemy, you better be careful because you're going to become the enemy at some point and force will be used against you. Well, as soon as you name an enemy, you have made yourself one too, right? Yeah. So radically love your enemies, truly. I mean, that's kind of a good thing to try to practice quietly on an individual level every day because we are constantly bombarded from both the right and the left in American politics today with an enemy to hate. And we're divided constantly. I mean, to a degree now where the president of the United States gave a speech on voting rules in Georgia and why we have to have a federal overhaul of all state election, which would be like pretty radical considering how the constitution lays out how voting rules are supposed to be left up to the states. I mean, he used the most hyperbolic, divisive, angry, gross language in that speech. And and there was pushback, you know. There was even sure. people on the left who were like, what the fuck? Right, <laughs> like, don't do that. That's <laughs> that a bridge too far. Right. You know, but like the fact that like the president of the United States and his speechwriters were like comfortable going there is really telling about where we are today. Um, right. And I think Everybody, no matter where you fall on like the current insufficient political spectrum, should push against that. Like, let's not be divided against each other. Absolutely. And again, other tenets of fascism that we see on both sides is the worship of your political figures. And that's a requirement yeah. for fascism or right. communism or authoritarian in nature, right? Yes, there are people that worship, will still worship, or worshiped Trump when he was in office. There's people that worshiped Obama. There's plenty of people that worship Biden. <laughs> Are there? Yeah, the Occupy Democrat 33% people. 33% yeah, yeah. of the country have a positive that's, approval of him. <laughs> you know, and even if a small portion of that, like, worship him, yeah, yeah. that's still freaky. It's, yeah. And again, totally, yeah. really, the people that truly worship you know, these leaders are honestly probably on the low percentages on either side. But, like, those are the people that are capable of, of causing trouble, right? Yeah, And so it's just be weary of that. We all fanboy over people, right? There's people that I, I, you know, probably would be like, Stephen, you worship this person. So I have to be careful of that, like not to put any man on a pedestal above anyone else. Be careful of that. And this is something that I'm evolving in my own ideology. And 
trying to lean into more and more as I kind of have to reject modern political parties and lean into what I believe. And that is no king but Christ, which is my Christian perspective. And that really has helped me and convicted me to like step back and be like, whoa, no man like should be elevated yeah. to, to a higher position. But that's what happens. Well, and even just like practically speaking, like taking religion out of it, which I respect what you've just mm-hmm. said, and it's beautiful. But even for people who don't identify that way, like, or that doesn't resonate with them. Human beings are fallible, right? Mm-hmm. So putting your hope and faith in a fallible human being is dangerous. And I think we'll flesh out and explore this in when we get to kind of the liberalism and anarchy and volunteerism when we get to like kind of that section Mm -hmm. or portion of the series but to me the only solution if you can't trust an individual to be the savior to to solve the world's problems and have the right answers and orchestrate society in such a way where it's utopia you have to decentralize power yep and get it as spread out as possible to as many individuals empower as many individuals as you possibly can that to me is the only alternative because you can't trust one person or a party no. to do the right thing and have the right answer at all times. So the more we can have those choices be left up to individuals to do who know what works best for themselves, because that's really the only the knowledge problem again, like it's so decentralized. You know, I, I can't I couldn't make decisions that would be optimal for you, but I can make decisions for myself that are optimal right, because exactly. I know myself and I and know my needs. you should preserve your ability to do that. Exactly. That to me is the only alternative. So there's a lot more here with fascism, but I feel like there I feel is. like we've taken a pretty good stab at it. I tonight. hope so. I, I think this yeah. is valuable to people and and at least opened it at least opened a doorway for more conversations that we can have, which, again, is the whole goal of all of these episodes. Yeah is to be able to lean on these and learn from them and apply them to to the world today. Yeah, and I think we had talked about wanting to kind of start the year off with this series for that exact purpose, to like offer a foundation for our future conversations. Yep, so, exactly. Yeah. So I think this was a great conversation. I had fun. Again, all of these topics are massive, and there are people that have whole lifetimes of work spent on just studying them, right? So obviously in an hour and a half like right it's it's a grain of sand in the beach but yeah we've like intentionally not gone into like the history of like we didn't spend time talking about like world war ii tonight right right and with communism it was like we couldn't even possibly begin to go into like all of the deep dark histories behind where it was implemented around the world but there are plenty of great podcasts out there that are devoted you know 30 hours to just like what happened in russia yeah exactly so anyway but these i hope we're we're kind of getting at just kind of the more like philosophical like idea and underpinnings of these ideologies exactly so would love to hear what you guys think give us some feedback if you so desire obviously we would love um to hear from you guys on twitter or instagram send us a dm add us tweet us um, all at whiskey bench pod yep leave us a review please that'd be lovely whichever you know app or or Streaming distributor service. that you use yeah and we'd love to hear from you and subscribe I, yes please and you can also tune in to our personal 
um, social medias if you'd like. I'm at Twitter at Mountain underscore Torna, MTN underscore Torna. I'm at Cat J Dwyer. And uh, hop in. We uh, are trying to be more active, have some fun on there. We love interacting with people, and you know, a lot of it's serious and a lot of it's goofy. So come hop in. We'd love to have have you there with us. Right on. I think that's a great way to end the evening. What happens when a Christianish agnostic, a liturgical post-Christian, and a female Methodist pastor walk into a podcast? You get Ravel. One in three people will experience a faith crisis in their life. Faith unraveling is often unexpected and lonely. It can quickly feel like everything is falling apart just from asking a single question. Like, does the Bible assume magic is real? Does being pro-life mean more than anti-abortion? Or how should faith inform how we eat? Whether you're deconstructing, reconstructing, deconverting, converting, growing beyond toxic theology, or just asking questions, we're here to be with you along the way. Each Wednesday, we have a drink and pull on one thread concerning faith in the modern world. Listen to us on the Highline Media Network. Highline Media Network, artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.